Romans 4 verse 13. Okay, let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to his church this morning. Romans 4 verse 13. Uh, Paul's been talking about this great truth that we justified by faith, declared right with God, just by trusting in Jesus. Declared, not made. Okay, it's not that we've been changed, so we're suddenly really good people. We've got a status, a declaration. And he's just been talking to someone who says, well, don't you also have to be circumcised? And now he turns his attention to the person who wants to talk about the law and keeping the rules. So verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, These last few weeks we've been speaking lots about the idea that we are justified through faith, declared right with God through trusting Jesus. If you're new to church, um, that, that might be a surprise to you. So many people understand the Christian faith as about trying to be good enough that hopefully when I die, God will let me into heaven. As if there's giant weighing scales. Children, my my mum used to have these sort of scales when we were little before digital scales. You'd you'd put some weights on one side and the flour on the other. You're trying to bounce out to get the number of pounds or whatever. So many people understand the gospel, understand the Christian message that is. To be saying, well, as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad, then, then hopefully you'll be okay. Paul says, nothing, we've got no chance. None of us, none of us are good enough to to enter heaven. But there's good news. Jesus was good enough. God's own son was good enough. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. So if you trust in him, God will look at you and say, I will treat you as if you'd lived Jesus' life for free. Don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe. We're saved through faith. And time and again in chapter four of Romans, Paul has spoken about faith. And this morning, that's what I want to focus on. And what is this faith? We talk about it, don't we? There are people of faith. Sometimes, perhaps again, you've got friends who who aren't Christians or you're here this morning and you've you've got Christian friends and you said to them, well, I I wish I had your faith, but I I just don't. Perhaps you're a Christian and you you, you want to grow in faith. But how does that happen? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're not actually entirely sure if you have got faith. And that's something that really worries you, bugs you. 
I know what I'm meant to believe, as it were. I know the kind of the content of the Bible is out here. I know what that is, but but have I believed it? I'm not saying I don't think it's true, but but have I actually believed it? Well, in Romans four, this part of Romans four, it's it's almost as if Paul takes us to the gym and gives faith a kind of workout. Faith, in a sense, is a muscle, but the more you exercise it, the more the more it grows. And so this morning we're going to we're going to look at two qualities of faith, two qualities of faith, and particularly this faith that justifies it. The first thing is that the faith rests on God's promise. Faith rests on God's promise. It's all about resting, particularly in the promise of God. Back down in Romans four and verse thirteen, the promise to Abraham says Paul and to his offspring, his descendants, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. All the way through Romans, what we'll see that one of the things Paul does is he, he makes a point and then like a good kind of debater, he, he's imagined someone coming back at him and saying, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, Paul. That, that's, that's fine. But, and then bringing in another argument. And here he's imagining someone saying, yeah, 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 believing in God and all that stuff, Paul. That's, that's great. Super important. Amen. Well done, you. But you do also have to keep the law, don't you? It's not enough just to believe this gospel you're talking about. I mean, it's essential to believe the gospel. But but, but don't overdo it, Paul. You have also got to keep the law. Yeah, particularly the commandments that, that God gave. Have no other gods before me. Make no graven image, no carved images. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day, honour your father and mother, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Those matter, Paul. And so for the person who's going to arrive safely in heaven and be declared right with God, it's going to be a bit of both and, isn't it? And so Paul says, well, okay, let's talk about that. Uh, Let's talk about it, particularly the person who really knows their Old Testament. So I guess the person he's kind of imaginarily dialoguing here is someone who, who may be Jewish in background. And so let's talk about, let's go back to Abraham, the promise to Abraham. Let's go to the Old Testament. In fact, the first book of the Bible, children, Abraham comes in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The promise to Abraham and his offspring, verse 13, sorry, came not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What is he talking about? Go to the Bible, come back with me to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, right at the beginning of the Bible. What is this promise? Genesis 15. And God meets Abraham. Now at this stage he's still called Abraham. He hasn't had his name changed, but don't worry too much about that. I'm going to keep calling him Abraham as his name becomes uh, in a couple of chapters time. And God makes this this huge promise to Abraham. Look at verse uh, 5. He, God, brought Abraham outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. Count the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's how many kids you're going to have. Look at the, the night sky, Abraham. Okay, how many stars are there? And Abraham, one, two, three, four, Okay, stop that, Abraham. There's billions of them, aren't there? Millions of them. Okay, that's how many children you're going to have. Now, he doesn't mean literal physical children. Sarah's not kind of fainting in the background. I think she's going to have to have like 20 billion children. Um, he means people who are going to be part of his tribe, as it were. We'll see exactly what that tribe is in, in, in a while. 
Verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God's promise and God said, right, you're right with me. Okay, that's the language of justification, being declared right with God. That verse, Genesis 15, verse 6, is quoted by Paul time and time again in the New Testament, in the book of Romans and Galatians, all over the place, to saying, this gospel, this idea that you just trust God's saving message and you're right with him like that, just because of your faith in him, this is not something I've cooked up, says Paul. It's not something Jesus brought in. It's been there since the beginning. 15th chapter of the Bible, and we're there. Years later, 400 odd years later, Abraham, who does have a kid, who has a kid, who has 12 kids, who become the 12 tribes of Israel, who have lots of children and grow into this people, the people of Israel. Years later, they're enslaved in Egypt. They're set free with Moses leaving. They go through the desert. They get to Mount Sinai. And then God comes to them again and meets with them just as he met with Abraham and makes another covenant. Covenant is the Bible's word for God's relationship with his people. I've said it thousands of times over the years. There's, you'll never read in the Bible of, of the phrase relationship with God. Just isn't there. We talk about it all the time, don't we? If you've got a relationship with God, it's just not in the Bible. Because the Bible's word for a relationship is covenant. So the idea is there. It's just called a covenant. So God made a covenant with Abraham. 430 odd years later, he makes another covenant with Abraham's descendants. That's where the Ten Commandments are given. It cannot be, says Paul, it cannot be that that Moses era covenant, that meeting at Mount Sinai, it cannot be that you had to keep all those laws in order to be justified because Abraham is justified right with God hundreds of years earlier. Just by faith, not by his keeping the law. It's all about trusting the promise in other words, Paul says, not about your own work. Stay in Genesis because I want to look at some details in the text in a moment. But, but just let me read again from, from Romans 4. He goes on to say, if it is the adherents, the keepers of the law, who are the ones who are to inherit the world, to be saved, in other words, faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, if actually... God later added in, you've got to keep all the rules in order to be saved, or a decent number of them, or you've got to bat above 50% or whatever it may be, then he's totally destroyed the gospel. If you add any kind of law keeping into the gospel, it's no longer a promise. Uh, children, imagine um, your, your mum and dad come to you and, you say, and they say, Do you know what? at Christmas, I promise you, I'm going to buy you a new bike. Okay, at Christmas. Christmas Day, I promise I'm going to give you a new bike. Absolute promise, on my word. This is hypothetical children, any children uh, with selling roads listening. Um, I, I, I'm gonna, I promise I'm going to buy you a new bike. And then Christmas Eve gets there and your mum and dad come to you and say, um, okay, that, about that new bike. Yeah, yeah you're going to have it tomorrow. As long as you clean the house, top to toe. Uh, as long as you finish all these maths questions I've written on a, on a piece of paper. Uh, as long as you get outside and sweep all the leaves and snow off the driveway. As long as at no point in the next 24 hours do you talk back to your mum and dad or fall out with your brother and sister. As long as you do all that, then I will give you that bike. 
What's happened? Well, your mum and dad have completely gone back on the promise. It's no longer a promise, is it? Initially, it was a promise of a gift, a free gift. I will give it to you on December 25th. If suddenly, just before they give it to you, they added a load of things you've got to do, it's not a promise anymore. They've ruined it. That's what Paul's saying. Once you read Genesis 15 and realise that God is going to save people just by trusting in his saving promise, you can't later add in some things we have to do. And so it goes on. That is why this whole deal, this whole salvation, verse 16, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. That's really crucial. The whole reason that time and again Paul has said we're saved through faith is so that everything might rest on grace. Now, grace is is one of the Bible's words for God doing all the work. So to say we're saved by grace alone is just a, a way of saying we're saved by God alone. If you're in Genesis 15, just, just look how the story goes on. So this, this picture of it, it is a really helpful, unsurprisingly, given God did it, uh, a really helpful way of understanding this. Abraham trusts, okay, he's counted righteous in verse 6. And then God does something very strange. Uh, verse 7, God said to Abraham, I'm the Lord who brought you out from her of the Chaldeans. And, and Abraham asked a question, well, how am I going to get this land and have all these kids and all the rest of it? Verse 9, God said to Abraham, bring me a heifer, three years old, a cow, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. He brought them, all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. So he gets all these animals and cuts them in half. A bit gruesome, but he cuts them in half. Now at this stage, you're thinking that is weird and that is possibly a bit grim. Abraham is thinking, right, okay, God, I, I get this, I get this. Because okay, in his world, in the world of the ancient Near, Near East, what was happening happened all the time. Now, anytime you had a, a kind of really dominant king, so children, imagine you're the, the emperor over all of the Middle East. There's all these tribes, there's the Hittites and the Amorites and the Amazites, all these kind of tribes. And there's one dominant one. He's the emperor. And he comes to you, you're a little king over, you've got a little hundred people in your little tribe. He comes to you and says, okay, here's the deal. I will look after your village. I'm not going to come beat you up and steal all your cows and chickens and stuff um, as long as you pay me 10 pieces of gold every year and you say that's, that's fine I'll accept that deal my deal is I send you 10 pieces of gold and two soldiers for your army and then you promise not to, to not to kind of raid my village and chop my head off deal now when we make a deal with one another we, we, we sign contracts don't we you know, the lawyer puts it in your hand and you sign a piece of paper and the other person signs a piece of paper and you promise to swap houses or whatever it is, it's a contract. The way they did it in the, in the ancient Near East is they got animals, <laughs> chopped them in half, okay? and then the, the, the lesser person, so you've got the king, the, the, the emperor, but the lesser person who was promising to give 10 pieces of gold and two soldiers for the army, he would walk between the pieces of the animals. And as he did so, what he's saying is, oh great king, you can treat me like these animals if I don't keep my promise to give you two soldiers and 10 pieces of gold every year. And the great king, as the lesser king walks towards him, is saying, here we go. This is the deal. I will bless you, as I've told you, as long as you do this. Send me two soldiers, 10 pieces of gold. It's a deal, contract. 
So Abraham, back to our story, Abraham cuts the, 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 the animals in half. God has said, I'm, I'm going to bless you. Abraham goes, how do I know? God says, let's, let's do the animal thing. Okay, this covenant-making ceremony. Anyone watching on, perhaps even Abraham himself, would think, oh, okay, we've got a great king, God, we've got a much lesser kind of king, Abraham. So what's going to happen? Abraham's going to have to walk through the pieces, just like the less king always does. The great king, God, is going to watch, and the great king will say, yeah, I'm going to bless you loads, and you just have to, let's see what the conditions are. But what happens? Look. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Okay, he's knocked out. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord makes the promises again. Know for certain your children will they'll be slaves in the land and he predicts the exodus. But it basically, he reissues the, the promise. Verse 17, let's pick up the, the story again. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land. Abraham is knocked out. He's paralysed, as it were, in the corner, watching on. He can't walk between the pieces of the animals, as he ought to, if he's going to keep the condition, keep the covenant. Instead, what goes through the animals? You see, the the smoking fire pot, verse 17. That kind of barbecue in your backyard. You know those fire pits? Everyone went mad for fire pits in um, lockdown, didn't they? Suddenly they... A trebled in price. Imagine that. It's, it's a fire going between the pieces. What is that? Well, it's a picture of the Lord God. Remember in the Old Testament, God very often leads his people as a fiery, cloudy pillar, like in the Exodus, when he comes into the temple or the tabernacle, he comes down as fire. In other words, God is walking through the pieces saying, do you know what, Abraham? This is how you'll know that all my promises to you will come true about a great land and lots of offspring and stars in the sky and all that. This is how you'll know, not that you're going to do anything. This is how sure you can be ping, knocks him out, you're going to do nothing. It is going to rely on you this much, Abraham. Boom. Unconscious, paralysed on the floor. It is going to rely on me. And the great king comes down and walks through the pieces. It's as if God says, over my dead body, Abraham, not yours, I'll bless you. And of course, that's an incredible picture of what's to come thousands of years later. Does Abraham deserve to be blessed, to be right with God, to be welcomed into heaven? No. Do you? No. Do I? Definitely not. If God said, well, I'll let you in as long as you, then it wouldn't matter what was on that list. You're not going to make it. None of us can. There is nothing in us that would allow us to walk through those pieces with confidence and say, yeah, Lord, I've got this. But the good news of the gospel is it is by faith so that it might rely on grace. In other words, God's work. God alone is going to save Abraham, his descendants, and all of us who trust the same way as Abraham does in God's promise. Faith rests on God's promise. It is him who's going to do the saving, not us. That means that faith isn't a thing or a quality. It's so easy to make faith into a work. We, we kind of get, get hold of the gospel and we say, oh, okay, okay, okay. I, you know, other religions say you've got to try really hard. Um, and if you try hard enough, you'll get into heaven. But in Christianity, we believe. We're the believers. And just subtly, you can make your faith the thing that has kind of earned your place in the kingdom. 
as if there's a kind of you know bouncer on the door uh, this morning, you know, what allows you in, into the God's church or, or not into the church? Well, I've got a card that says, I believe, well done me. Well, no, your faith isn't a thing. You've not been saved because you were clever enough to believe. The whole point about faith is not what it is, but who it trusts. In other words, rather than asking the question, you know, can I find faith in myself? Do I, am I a person of faith? If I look hard, am I, can I see myself believing and getting yourself in a real tangle? Ask instead, who do I want to trust for my salvation? The significant thing about faith is its object, what it's resting on, not the thing itself, if that makes sense. Of course, in one sense, every person in this room has got faith. You either trusting God does exist and will save you in Jesus, or you're trusting he doesn't, and either another God's going to rescue you, or when you die, you're just going to rot, and that'll be the end, or we've all got faith. It's not this kind of mysterious extra thing, like a gas that's pumped into you when you become a Christian, or something you're injected with. It's not, it's not a quality. It's just a way of describing who you're looking to for rescue. Uh, that means your faith might be small, or large, weak or strong. But if it's in Jesus, you're equally safe. I'm sure you've ever seen those, um, it doesn't happen in the UK much anymore, happened in the old days, but those, those lakes that freeze over uh, in winter and then people go and skate on them. Sometimes even rivers, the River Thames used to freeze over back in the day and you could go and skate on it. Imagine two people coming to a river, it's frozen over, two people going skating. And the first person, this is great, pops on the skates and shoots out onto the, onto the river, the frozen over river, zooming around. Second person's a bit more cautious. They kind of tiptoe onto it and is it going to break? I'm not sure. Am I going to go through the lake and going to plunge into the icy water? And they sort of stutter on and stumble. One of them's full of faith. This will hold me. The other one's really not full of faith. They get, they get on, they're on, but they, they feel a bit nervous the whole time. Which one is safer? Well, they're both equally safe, aren't they? Because their safety actually rests not upon their trust, as if the one who really trusts the ice is going to be much safer. Because the kind of his faith in the ice helps him to hover a few inches above the floor or something. It's the ice that holds them. Paul says the whole reason the gospel is about being saved through faith, not by faith. By the way, that's something we often slip into. We talk about being saved by faith as if that is the thing that saves you. But through faith, think of faith as like a. Um, you know, pipe, just what <laughs> God's salvation comes through it. It's not a thing itself. The whole reason it's through faith is so that God will be the one doing the saving, not us. Faith rests on God's promise. Secondly, more briefly, faith rests on God's promise. Faith looks to God's power. Come back to Romans 4 now that we're done in Genesis and the promise. Romans 4, verse 17 onwards. Abraham is promised he'll be the father of many nations. And in the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not. What is it ultimately that, that, that Abraham believes? Abraham believes God, the God in whom he believed. Faith rests, or sorry, looks to God. True faith looks to God. 
in two particular ways. We see it with Abraham. First of all, uh, do you see he's the God who gives life to the dead, verse 17. Think about the Lord Jesus when he comes. Uh, and on a number of occasions in the, in the Gospels, he comes across someone who is dead. Perhaps the most famous is Lazarus, his friend. Uh, his friend has died. He's buried. Jesus turns up a few days later. What help does he need from Lazarus in order to raise Lazarus from the dead? Okay, to me, it's a great miracle. Okay, it's a great miracle. We know the end of the story. Lazarus ends up raised from the dead. Okay, back to life again. If you were saying, we're writing two columns, the Jesus column and the Lazarus column, um, who did what? What would he put in Lazarus's column? What did he chip in? Nothing. He's dead. Couldn't be clearer, could it? I wonder sometimes if that's why those miracles are in the Bible, um, alongside the ones about healing the, the sick and giving sight to the blind and um, paralysed walking and all the rest of it. Maybe with those other miracles, they take blind Bartimaeus, who comes blind to Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, let me see. And Jesus says, there you go. Maybe if we only had those miracles, we'd think, well, it's a kind of a deal, isn't it? You know, Jesus has got the power and Bartimaeus brought the faith. So together, most things, 95% in the Jesus column, power. And then 5% in, in the Bartimaeus column, faith. Lazarus, and the, the stories of raising the dead, blows that out of the water. Lazarus is not coming in faith to Jesus. Lazarus is not coming anywhere. He is a corpse. Stone cold dead. Can bring nothing. That's no problem to Jesus, to God. He gives life to the dead. With your salvation, you don't need to bring anything to the table. He gives life to the dead. You do not need to help him. He not only is a God who can give life to the dead, verse 17, second half, he calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's a bit of a tricky phrase. It could mean a number of things, but I think probably it's referring to the idea of God making everything out of nothing. Children, if I said, can you, can you, make, me, um, can you make me a dinosaur? I reckon a lot of you could do it, couldn't you? So if I give you a box of plasticine, you could mould a little dinosaur and, and bring me a little dog. I, don't, I hate dinosaurs, actually. I don't know why I went for that as an example. But you could make me something. Get me a little dog. You make me a little dog out of plasticine. Oh, we could use cardboard or, or draw a picture. You could do it. If I took away the box, took away the pens, and said, no, no, you can't use anything. I want you to make me a dinosaur, just like that. You're stuck, aren't you? You can't do it. That's no problem for God. He doesn't need any raw material, any promising circumstances. When he made the world, he didn't do so by finding a load of kind of space dust that was floating around and reshaping it. There was nothing there. Just him. He spoke and out of nothing, things came to be. I think Paul is saying it's a bit like that with your salvation. God doesn't need promising material, your end. You don't need to bring him some stuff he can work with. Abraham didn't. So verse 18, he goes back to Abraham. In hope, Abraham believed against hope he'd become the father of many nations. Because that's what the promise said. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Abraham was nearly 100 and he hadn't got any kids. Sarah wasn't much younger. His, her womb is described as barren, literally dead. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah weren't able to help God. Out. 
Abraham and material without being too kind of medically graphic about it weren't bringing any raw material to the table for God to work with in order to make Isaac the son of the promise. They contributed nothing. And yet, Abraham still trusted that it would happen. He's not in denial. Do you see that verse 19? He did consider his own body and consider Sarah's womb. He knows that 100-year-old men and 90-year-old women, whatever Sarah is, can't have kids. He understands that. But he refuses to believe his eyes. And that is such an important principle for the Christian life. You must refuse to believe your eyes. Abraham is not driven by what he sees, an old man and an old woman. He is driven by what he hears, God's voice saying, you are right with me and you will have offspring, descendants. His eyes say that's ridiculous. But his ears tell him, well, God has promised him. And God has all the power. So similarly, if you're going to live a Christian life where you, where you, you experience and you know the peace of God, the joy of God, you must not believe your eyes. Because your eyes are going to tell you all sorts of things. You're going to look at yourself and see such little love for God and love for neighbour. The two great commandments. That is what you'll see. And I've also got into your head, well, that doesn't look like a Christian to me. You'll look at yourself and you'll see such sin and disobedience. And your eyes will say, that's not what a Christian looks like. And Satan will be there whispering in your ear to you. Amen, amen. That's what a real Christian looks like. You, you can't be safe living like that. Just look at yourself. Just look at your heart. The gospel promise comes and says, stop looking. Refuse to believe your eyes. Do not believe your eyes. Believe your ears. The promise of God. Anyone who trusts Christ is declared righteous. And you say, no, 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 I'm, I'm too weak, God. I can't, I can't do it. Abraham shouts at you. Faith looks to God's power, not your own. We were too weak. We were apparent. We were dead. But he has the power to save. Your eyes, you look to yourself and you say, look, look, I, I haven't done enough. I don't love enough. I don't feel enough for you. Abraham comes and says, look, it's not about you. It's about God. That's the whole point. Get out of yourself. Don't believe your eyes. Listen to your ears. I think it's incredible in many ways. In verse 20, um, Paul says, no unbelief made Abraham waver. If you know the story of Abraham, you would read it in Genesis and think he was wavering all over the place. He does some outrageous stuff. What he, he sort of, he's so scared about various things going on that he, he pretends that his wife is his sister in order that you know, his other king can kind of semi-date her. It's just a total car crash. All sorts of things going on in Abraham's life. And yet Paul says his faith does not waver, I think, because basically his orientation is, I do want to trust, I do want to stick with you. And what's such good news, I think, is verse, end of verse 20. He grew strong in his faith. Faith grows, by the way. Some people are weak, some people are strong, but it's all there. He grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. How does he give glory to God? He gives glory to God precisely by not relying on himself at all, but by trusting God's promise. 
It brings more glory to God to say, I cannot do this at all. I'm going to rest on Jesus, on you alone for righteousness. Than it does to try and chip in. If you're drowning out at sea and the lifeguard comes and chucks the hoop over you and you know, tugs you in and you get back onto the beach and the crowd, you know, the crowd are all cheering and then eventually you sort of splash up the water and you stand up next to the lifeguard, put your arm around his shoulder and go, yeah, we did it, didn't we? We, res- we rescued me. It's ridiculous. How do you give more glory to the lifeguard? Just by joining in the applause. It's all him. It's not me. It's not my trust in the lifeguard or my faith in accepting the rubber ring he threw me. It was all him. You actually bring God, as it were, more pleasure, more joy by getting out of yourself and saying, you know, it is all him. So, faith. It rests on God's promise. It looks to God's power. In other words... It is drawn out of you, not pushed out of you. Let me close with this illustration. Um, imagine you want to be someone who really appreciates the art of Rembrandt. Okay. For some reason, that's what you want to be. And so you hear there's a Rembrandt exhibition in, in, in town, and you go along, and the, 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 the room is full of his paintings, of which I can name zero. <laughs> full of Rembrandt's great works. How do you become an appreciator, someone who really loves Abraham, uh, Rembrandt? You don't go in, do you, and, and pull out a pocket mirror and start reflecting yourself back and saying, right, am I, am I the kind of person who, who looks like a Rembrandt fan? Um, how am I doing appreciating him? Let's, let's get an eye doctor in, look at my eyes, how are they doing? You know, how, how's, how's it? No, you don't look at yourself. You look at the paintings. And you look at the, the, the skill, the beauty of his paintings, your admiration grows. Do the same with a classical music concert or any music concert. <laughs> you don't go and listen. You, you go and listen. And your appreciation is pulled out of you. So it is with faith. Look at God's love. Look at his power. Look at his desire to save. Look at what Christ has done. And you'll find that as you don't look at it, your faith grows. The more you turn in, am I trying? I've got to... The more your faith will, will shrivel. Because the whole point about faith is who it's in, not what it is. Faith comes by hearing the word, Paul will say later. Later. In the letter to Romans. So do not believe your eyes, believe your ears. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, we pray so much that in your mercy you would take us out of ourselves in order that we might look to Christ alone, to his righteousness. Stop us trying to help in our salvation, in our justification, prevent us trying to add anything in, uh, bring promising material. It is such an incredible relief to know we're saved by Christ alone. And so might our faith grow and grow as we refuse to believe our eyes and listen instead to your word. And we ask in his name. Amen.